Uh, if you have your Bibles today, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Hosea, chapter 14. And if you're not sure where Hosea is, uh, don't worry. I don't mean this sarcastically. I mean this genuinely. There, there's a table of contents in the front of your Bible. Uh, open it and um, see where Hosea is and then find that page. If you don't have uh, a Bible with you, you can go borrow one. They're on the sides of the tech booth back there. Uh, if you grab one of those Bibles, we're going to be on page 759, I believe. And uh, again, we're in Hosea chapter 14. Hosea 14. Anybody ever been in a conversation where you just figured out pretty quickly that you're in over your head, but that you still really, really, really want to participate and you start mouthing off? And then there's a, comes a point where you're like, oh, I just said something really dumb. Anybody with me on that? Uh, I sit down with some of our NASA people here, and about four sentences in, I'm way behind, like long gone. They've long, the, their rocket has left the launch pad, and I'm still standing going, huh, what just happened? But because I am who I am, and because I want to be engaged with them, I keep talking like I know what I'm talking about. And then it takes about two words for them to figure out, you have no idea what I'm saying. No, actually, uh, about 10 minutes ago, you lost me. We've only been here five. I know, that's how far we're behind. Actually, am when you rolled out that eight-syllable word, this is I got lost. Uh, it also has happened to me before in medical situations where, because you know our family has spent some time in a hospital, all of a sudden I'm a I'm a doctor. You know, I mean, it's crazy. Where I start talking like, I, no, I really I read it. I read it on WebMD. That's a bad. You know, you're dumb. You should just be quiet. Um, but because uh, I am at my best when I'm speaking about things that I know. I'm at my best when I'm acting according to what I know to be true. I'm at my best when I'm giving what I've been given. You with me on that, everybody? I'm at my best when I give what I've been given. And today, we're going to pick this up, that particular theme that we, not only me individually, but we collectively as a church, we are at our best when we give what we've been given. And so uh, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 14, and uh, as it says on the screen there, today is Orphan Sunday, um, where we are excited to um, kind of raise this banner and rally the troops for the cause uh, of the orphans in the world. So starting with Hosea chapter 14, verse 1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, return. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. And he goes on and talks about Assyria. I'll mention that here in just a second, but just pause here. Because the whole context of Hosea, if you have engaged with Hosea before, you kind of get this part. And if you haven't, it's a, it's a salacious story. This is tabloid kind of stuff. Um, God uses the prophet Hosea not only with his words, but with his actions. Now, he had prophetic words, but he also had prophetic actions because he calls Hosea to marry a prostitute, a lady named Gomer. And she, uh, being who she was, she consistently turned her back and walked away uh, from Hosea. And what did God consistently tell Hosea to do? Hey, I want you to pursue her and reconcile with her. Bring her back. I want you to, to go after her and return her to, to, this, to this setting, to this um, situation, to this circumstance, to this relational context, to this family. I want you to go get her, is what he's saying. I'm going to pursue Hosea. I'm going to pursue her, and I'm going to win her back. I'm going to be reconciled to her. And God uses that prophetic picture to say, the people of Israel have also wandered away from me. In their unfaithfulness and in their hard-heartedness, they've turned and they've walked away and pursued other things. And now I, God, am pursuing the people of Israel, the people of God to come back. Anybody ever had that moment where because, you, you know, uh, you just 
whatever situation may have been your thing, but you kind of turned away from God. It's like, I got other things to do right now. And then you had a moment of clarity where God, you figured out that God was in hot pursuit of you and you're like, what in the world am I doing out here? Indeed, this is the thing. So with his words and with his actions, the whole idea of Hosea is return. So he starts, he he ends the last chapter of this prophecy with return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Come back, is what he's saying. Come back, come back. Um, Returning to God. And some people, if you're in the room today, and maybe you've been away from church for a while, been away from God for a while, you think returning to God, I'm not so sure that's going to go well for me. You don't know the stuff that I've done. You don't know the problems I've had. You don't know the choices I've made. You don't know the baggage I've packed. You don't know, I mean, all this stuff. And the truth is, is you're right. I don't know. Here's what I do know. Returning to God is never about retribution. It's always about restoration. It's always about reconciliation. It, 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 is, it is for that purpose. When God says, return to me, he's not saying, come back so I can punch you in the nose. You no good. What he's saying is, come back to me because I've got good things in store for you and all of the the stuff that you're going through out there, all of the terrible things that you're going through out there, all the hardship that you're going through out there, all the things that are happening out there, return to me. Return to me. Returning to God is never, and I say this for you today if you're here, returning to God is never about retribution. He doesn't give you a closed fist. He gives you an open hand instead. That's why he says, return to me, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Um, the, the, the punishment, if you will, the retribution side is actually in the distance itself. It's, the punishment is being away from him. And you and I, because of our own choices, that's where we find ourselves away from him. Look at what he says in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Here we go. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. We have stumbled because of our iniquity. Anytime we choose to sin, and do things that God says not to do. Anytime we um, uh, don't do the things that God says are worthwhile and and worth doing, uh, anytime we do those things, we stumble. We find ourselves tripping, falling, and oftentimes face first in the ground going, what what, what just happened here? It's easy. We've stumbled because of our iniquity. That's, that's, that's punishment in and of itself. Skip down to verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. When he's talking about Assyria, a different kingdom uh, than the kingdom of Israel. Um, uh, you know, Sometimes they ran after these other kingdoms to try to uh, have an alliance with them. Or, or, hey, listen, if I've got this big guy on my side, maybe it'll be okay. But the deal is we've trusted in Assyria to save us. We, that, that's part of the thing. The, the, when we put our trust in, in earthly things like that, what we're doing is saying, hey, God, you're not really worth it. I'm not sure I can count on you. I'm not sure you are who you say you are or can do what you say you can do. Instead, I'm putting my trust in, the, in this earthly thing. And whenever we trust in earthly thing, how does that go for us? Terribly. Thus, he says, we're not going to put our trust. Assyria will not save us, and we're not going to ride on horses. We've trusted in Assyria. In, in Assyria to save, or we've trusted in political candidates to save, or we've trusted in um, uh, financial security to save, or we've trusted in military might to save, or a hundred other things that we can name. We've trusted in our hearts other things to save, and therefore we've distanced ourselves from God. And the last thing he says in, in the middle of verse three, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands in other words, we've bowed down before our own stuff. We, 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 have, we have fallen down in worship 
um, to things that we have made. We, we have given ourselves to monuments and to idols, if you will, and they come in all shapes and sizes. They could be uh, uh, big buildings that have our name on them. They could be companies that we build. They could be social media posts that we put that actually hit you know, X number of likes, however many that would be. Monuments come in all shapes and sizes, but we find ourselves bowing down to those things. And when we do, when we stumble, when we trust in other things, and when we bow down to the work of our hands, listen, we find ourselves distanced from God. And it's true that whether it's whether we could describe it as distance or maybe we could describe it as separation or we could describe it as alienation, the whole point is God's over there and we're over here and he's not the one who moved. We are. So, what's the plan here? I mean, the best part is, according to Hosea, God speaks through the prophet Hosea in his words and his actions, and he's speaking to you and me right now. The best part is God's not going to settle for this distance. He's not going to leave us distant. He's going to recall out and say, hey, return, 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 return to me, oh people. Come back to me. God's not going to settle this. He didn't settle for Israel, and he didn't settle for us. So what is his plan then? Well, it's not to uh, you know, kind of put ourselves on the religious treadmill and just wear ourselves out and not go anywhere. Oh, what is his plan? It's not self-effort. Why, why do I know that? Because the, the effort that we've already put into this deal where we've sinned against God, that effort has so tipped the scales opposite of our favor, it can never be righted again. Our offense is an infinite offense against this holy God. And so we can't ever uh, um, right, if you will, the scales of that because of this infinite offense. Instead, his plan looks something very uh, different. But man, it is such incredible good news. Here's his plan. Look at verse 2. Take with you words, take with you words, and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity except what is good. It starts, when we return to God, it starts with a confession of our sin. His plan for restoration for you and for me is simply to confess our sin to him and go, hey, listen, God, uh, here I am, and I'm, I messed up. You can count on me messing up. Hey, because here's what, take with, him, take with him these words. Return, say, hey, take away all this iniquity, accept what's good. God, I have messed up. I, I need to take your perspective on my sin instead of my perspective on my sin. I'm going to admit, if you will, that, that I have uh, uh, sinned against you. But he doesn't stop there. He, said, he keeps going in verse 2. Um, and we will pay with bulls in the vows of our lips. So not only confession of sin, but also a sacrifice for sin. Now, the good news for you and for me, opposite uh, the people of Israel in Hosea, we're not hauling livestock around behind us. We don't have bulls or goats or anything else just, you know, kind of right backstage where you could... Uh, why? Why? Because as New Testament people, we believe there was a lamb who was sacrificed for us, but it wasn't some little poor sheep. It was Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We believe that there was a, a sacrifice given for us that, that no blood, excuse me, that no bull or no goat could ever uh, accomplish, and that is Jesus. He gave himself his blood, not the blood of someone. He became the sacrifice for us. He substituted himself for us. The thing, that, uh, the thing that desperately needed to happen was a payment for our sin, and Jesus did that by dying for us. We didn't have to die on our own, and we couldn't just uh, kind of band-aid it together with all of this other stuff. Instead, Jesus himself. So there is a sacrifice for sin. Um, so we admit, if you will, that, that we are a, a sinner. We need to confess our sin, and we believe. We believe that Jesus 
is our sacrifice. And then thirdly, we commit ourselves to him. And we go back to verse three, Assyria is not going to save us. We're not going to ride on horses. We're not going to say any more to the work of our hands here. You're our God. Instead, we're going to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to him. If you've been around church for a while, this should sound awfully familiar because this is the heart of our response to the gospel. The good news that Jesus has come and he has lived a perfect life and died a perfect death and rose victoriously as the son of God in power. And he is uh, uh, right now reigning at the uh, right hand of God, praying for his people. And one day he's going to return and make everything right. Our response to that is to confess our sin and to believe that Jesus has died for us and to commit our life wholeheartedly to him. This is the response to the gospel. If you've not been around church and this is news to you, man, this is the best news you're ever going to get. This is the best news you're ever going to get, that God takes broken people and he accepts them when they confess their sin and believe, uh, believe in Jesus and give their lives to him. And, and then, in light of that, in light of that plan, in light of the good news of the restoring work of God, where does he turn? This is the part that I just couldn't get past as I was reading through this this past week. This is the part I couldn't get past. So, one more time. We're going to say no more at the end of verse 3, uh, our God, to the work of our hands. And then he says what at the end of verse 3? In you, the orphan finds mercy. No, no, why? Why does he turn there? Why does he do that right there? But, but why does he mention orphans uh, when it comes to this? Because we give what we've been given. See, let me put this... I'll just try to build a little momentum to help you understand. Um, we're at our best when we give what we've been given. So uh, when it comes to things like evangelism, sharing our faith, right? We don't talk about somebody else's story. What, whose story do we tell? We tell our story. We invite people into what we ourselves have been invited into. When we talk about finances and the kingdom of God, like we did last week, we say, hey, we're blessed. That's right, to be a blessing, okay? So we give what we've been given. When it comes to orphan ministry, the same thing. We give what we've been given. Why are we talking about this? Because you and I were the people separated from God who needed to be uh, uh, reconciled to God. You and I were the people distanced from God who needed to be brought near to God. You and I were the people alienated from God who needed to be restored to God. And you and I were the people without father and without family who through the cross of Jesus have been brought into relationship with him and now have both father and family. You and I were the orphans. And because we give what we've been given, that's when we work at our best, He comes right out of the gospel, right out of the the beautiful picture of the gospel of confessing our sin and of uh, believing in this sacrifice that Jesus has made and committing uh, committing our lives to him. He comes right out of that and says, hey, and as a reminder, in you, the orphan finds mercy. Long before all the rest of the blessings that, that the rest of chapter 14 holds, long before the rest of the blessings we would love to have, he starts with mercy for the orphan. Why? Because we give what we've been given. Now, um, we announced this last week, and I want to put kind of a face and a name together for you, especially as it relates uh, to this cause of giving, being given, uh, giving out of what we've been given. And so I want to bring um, T.J. Mitchell, who's our friend and partner um, from Bolivia, um, Coach Obama Bolivia, up, and his wife Tammy is sitting right there as well. Y'all welcome, T.J. And as I said um, to the earlier service and say to you now, um, the whole point of these next few moments is just to let you 
picture all of this. Let, let you see this in flesh and blood in terms of their ministry and uh, that kind of thing. So uh, this is TJ, and as I said, his, Tammy, his wife Tammy is on the front row uh, there, over there. And um, TJ, just paint for us, if you will, a brief picture of orphan ministry and Fundacion Esperanza and all of that. Yeah, so um, good morning. It's good to be here. Um, Fundacion Esperanza is, uh, is an orphanage or a ministry that we started about three years ago. So we're still a fairly young orphanage or, or organization. Uh, we operate in Cochabamba, Bolivia, <clears throat> in South America. And so right now, uh, we work with orphans really of all ages. We, we work from birth um, all the way up to adult, young adults, 18, 19, 20 years old, who are transitioning into um, independent living. So right now, uh, in the last three years, we've served about 80, over 80 kids uh, have come uh, in and out, and some are still with us. Right now, we have about 55 kids under our care, um, and those are split into four different homes. And so they're, they're divided by age and gender, a little bit older. So we've got babies, birth to five that we work with. Uh, we've got a boy's home for ages six to 17, a girl's home with the same six to 17. And then we've got a transition home for young ladies who have basically, what we would say, have aged out, um, but they're not quite ready to live independently. So we're working with them as well. So uh, you were in the, just brief backstory here, you were in the banking industry, I'll let you touch on that, uh, and somehow you ended up in Cochabamba, Bolivia. So you went from the Burbs to Cochabamba. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you and your family got involved in orphan care ministry. Yeah, so we've always loved um, working with children. Um, goes back many years. Um, and early on in our marriage, we struggled uh, with infertility issues and, and struggles like that, and, and actually they're became a point where we thought we would never be parents. We'd kind of given up on that dream. Um, and so uh, we then adopted our first daughter, uh, Madison, who's 10. We adopted her at birth. Uh, we've adopted two more since then. Uh, and we've got about 55 others that are on the waiting list. Um, and so we, we just really have always had this desire and this burden to help um, uh, children specifically. So like Trent said, we were, um, we were living the dream. Uh, we were um, su suburban America. I was uh, doing well in the banking industry, and, and we just thought we had our life pretty much mapped out. Um, and then in 2008, I really kind of felt this burden that, that I should probably be doing something differently. And so um, I wanted to kind of quench that, and so I went on a short-term mission trip. Um, and so did that... Um, met a guy on the way back who uh, was in his into his 70s. He had retired from Gideon's International. Just fascinating stories about how he's traveled the world and shared the word and passed out Bibles. And so I kind of took, the, my takeaway from that was, well, that's probably what God's trying to tell us is that when we retire, we should look into doing something ministry related. And so I came back and shared that with Tammy and, and we just kind of left it at that, that, you know, when we retire, that'll be, that'll be what we do. I was 28 at the time, so, you know, retirement wasn't on the radar. Uh, following year, um, a couple of months passed by, and the, the, the burden didn't leave. Um, it, just, it just wasn't going away. So I went on another short-term mission trip, and, and it was during that trip that, that God just really uh, kind of spoke to me. And, and, and I'm a little slow sometimes, so God has to really get in my face and, and direct. And so he, he pretty much said, I'm going to tear down... Every obstacle um, that you put up, every excuse that you make, I'm going to tear it down because they're, they're basically garbage. And, and that's all I'd been doing at that point. 
we were young, small child at home, just bought a house, career was great. I mean, there were so many reasons why it didn't make sense for us to, uh, to even think about um, leaving that and going somewhere else. Um, so I, I finally on that trip just said, God, that I'm tired of making excuses. It's pretty obvious that, um, that I'm not going to win this battle. So, so, so we're going to surrender. We're going to do what you want to do. And so I come back and, and talk to Tammy about that and have to kind of change my story a little bit about, you know, how we talked about retirement and our plans and that kind of stuff. And so uh, talked about doing that a little sooner. So we start the process of praying and seeking counsel at our church and talking with ministers there. And so we basically were pointed to Cochabamba, Bolivia, went on a vision trip, a four-day vision trip um, in April of 2010. And by November of 2010, we have sold everything we own, quit my job, and we were on an airplane uh, bound for Cochabamba. Yeah. We don't win many battles when we pick a fight with God, do we? That's <laughs> how that goes. Uh, so pa- paint the picture for us. What's the kind of broader orphan, um, what, what does that look like in Bolivia? What's the broader orphan situation in Bolivia? Yeah, so we, we've got s- the statistics that we have in Bolivia, and then we have kind of the reality. So statistically speaking, there's a problem, but it's not a huge or grave problem. So uh, really and truly, in, in Bolivia, there's an estimated 13,000 kids that are kind of in the system or, or that would kind of qualify as that orphan uh, status. Um, in our city alone, there's uh, there's about 6,000. Um, and so we, uh, there's a huge need and there's very little being done to, to help with that need. And so um, in our city alone, with the 6,000 kids, there's only about 80 legal legally operating um, homes that are, that are helping with this. So... Um, we get calls constantly um, asking, do you have space? Can you take another child? Um, and, and unfortunately, that answer um, is oftentimes no because we, we're, we're full um, with, with what we have. Uh, and like the kids that you mentioned, uh, you know, you got baby house and uh, school-age kids, and, and then you've got uh, a transition house. How many of those kids, uh, you know, somebody out here gets a heart for Bolivia and adopting, that kind of thing, how many of those kids would be adoptable? Um, to anybody out here that wanted to adopt, zero, none. Um, you Americans cannot adopt from Bolivia um, unless you've lived there for two years. And so, um, and in fact, all international adoptions are closed to Bolivia right now. So um, adoption is, is not an option. It's, it's not on the table. But they can move there and telecommute. You can move there, stay two years. years like we did, and we mm-hmm. adopted two, so uh, it's well, well worth it. Well, Bolivians can adopt. Bolivians, Bolivians can children. adopt. And what's kind of what's the status of that? Yeah. So, really, in the last two years, there's been this kind of movement to educate um, Bolivians of the, the need, um, the crisis that exists, um, and so we've seen a few steps in the right direction. Uh, there's still a long way to go. We have seen more Bolivian families, specifically in the church, kind of get involved. Um, we've, just from personal experience with our organization, we've had um, eight adoptions take place um, in the last um, two years, because really the first year we didn't see any, um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you that's that's uh, one of the highest numbers in all of uh, Cochabamba. Um, it's just... It doesn't happen um, very often, but but we're 
we're seeing some steps in the right direction. That's also a focus that we're having. It's just engaging churches in the area to really kind of say it's it's our job. It's nobody else's job except the churches to step up and to really um, kind of fix this problem. So we're going to talk some more about that in just a second. But, you know, as a church family, we've uh, raised this flag for Orphan Sunday for about four or five years now. Uh, and multiple families in here have you know, responded to that in, in various ways. Uh, our, our church has been partnered with Fundacion Esperanza and the Mitchells uh, for about three years. And um, great story about how all that happened. We'll tell it at a different time. Um, but we've taken about five mission trips uh, down your way and tried to serve in some ways. What, what all have they done? What has it meant? How has it helped? Those kinds of things. Yeah, so we, we love, and I shared this in the last service, and I'll, show, I'll share it here. We, we, love, we love teams from, from this church. Um, we've loved every single one of them. They're, they're all fantastic. Um, and I, I'm not just saying that to, to win favor. Or um, the, the people that, that have come from this church have been very intentional about adding value to what we're doing. They don't come to fix anything or with the mentality of, you know, we're Americans, so let's show you a better way to do something. Um, they've, they've brought tools to help us out, whether that be in our education realm. Uh, we've had preschool curriculum and, and a team of people from this church come down and train all of our um, preschool educators on how to use the curriculum and, and just giving them tools. We've had mental health professionals from this church come and work with our psychologists and, and kind of just talk through some of the uh, cases that we've got in our, in our homes, but then also giving tools and uh, other ideas of, of ways to work. So uh, medical teams, first aid, CPR training, um, that's been huge. I mean, there's so many um, awesome things that, that this church has contributed uh, to be a part of what's going on in Bolivia. So not everybody can get on a plane uh, and go. So multiple other people have been engaged um, in other ways, financially, prayerfully, and that kind of thing. Um, if, if a person, uh, you talked about child sponsorship, and um, I know there's still some kids who uh, need some child sponsorship. If a person jumps in on something like that, for instance, how, how, do, how do we kind of rally behind that, and then what, what does that go to? What does that, what does that help with? Yeah, so we... Um We've seen a, a, a pretty good response to child sponsorship. We still have, um, I'm just trying to pull up the exact numbers. I don't have the exact numbers. We've still got a handful, maybe up to 10 kids that don't have sponsors. So uh, when you sponsor a child, it does a couple of things. First of all, um, it helps kind of offset some of the financial costs because kids like to eat and, you know, they, they require clothes. And so all of that stuff comes at a cost. Uh, and so... It does that. Um, what we've seen, uh, we've had a few people from here as well go and visit children that they sponsor, um, and it really gives the uh, it gives the kids in Bolivia kind of this sense of wow, they're you know the world's bigger than just my little bubble here. First of all, there are other people in the world that um, that pray pray for me, that know my name, that know who I am, and so they're uh, you know that that genuinely care about me, um, and so it really kind of gives them um, just a different outlook of basically I'm a forgotten kid in the system here to, wow, there are people that, that genuinely care about my well-being. So that's kind of the day-to-day -day stuff. And one of the questions I like to ask you know, all sorts of people, like if, if you could wave a magic wand and have what you wanted tomorrow, I mean, what's the big dream for you? Yeah, so up until this point, we've been living in rented properties, all of our homes. And so we're scattered kind of throughout the city. Uh, we've had some challenges with just owners wanting to sell homes and having to move. Um, and so the dream would be to, to buy property, to buy a big piece of land and to consolidate all of our operations by building homes on that land 
and then operating there. So um, it, it's a real estate's not cheap right now in Bolivia. So you know, seven hundred thousand dollars is kind of the the number that we've come up with that, that it would take to to accomplish that. Uh, so that's kind of the practical, uh, all of the practical stuff, uh, which is all very important. Uh, this, I think, is everybody can participate in. I, I don't have a seven hundred thousand dollar. I don't have. I don't have a check in my pocket for that. Anybody else? Anybody? Well, okay. So if you don't, that's all right. Uh, this we can do. This we can pray for. Um, so you know, in light of the spiritual warfare, um, you know, y'all being on furlough and then headed back. Uh, you know, what, what are some things that we as a church family can commit to praying for for you and your family? Yeah, so um, you can pray for our family just for, for strength uh, because the, the spiritual attacks are, are real um, and it's something that we face. Uh, pray for the, the caregivers also that are on the ground in Bolivia day to day um, because, you know, with, dealing with children is not always an enjoyable experience. I mean, especially when you're dealing with um, several who have come from very difficult, troubling situations. Their their behavior is not always uh, what we would consider appropriate. And so it comes with its challenges, and, and it really wears on uh, the people who are showing the love of God to them on a daily basis. So for the staff, um, and then just for, um, for our family. Um, I think I said that already. Um, yeah, um, that we would finish this time in the States um, well. It's been a great visit. Uh, it's a furlough, so it's time to regroup, reconnect, relax a little bit, um, and then that we would hit the ground running and uh, and be ready for, um, you know, what God has next. In the earlier service, uh, I didn't know you were going to tell the story, but it was so perfect. Uh, will you tell Gabrielle's story again for this crew? Yeah. So um, this is what this is what the ministry looks like. Yeah. So we. Uh, you know, we, we typically get calls from the government uh, asking if we have space. Uh, and if we say yes, then they'll bring the child to us um, uh, along with whatever information they have. Well, we get a call uh, shortly after we open um, asking if we had space to take a two-year-old boy. And, and we said yes because we did at the time. Uh, and then they asked us to go pick him up, uh, which was kind of strange, but we didn't think too much of it. Well, it didn't take me very long after showing up there to realize why... Um, they didn't want to bring him. He was just, he was a two-year-old boy that had suffered um, severe physical abuse uh, from his father. Um, and so he was terrified of men. Um, he was just, he acted out just really, really troubling to see this kid act the way that he did. And so we, we brought him to the home. That was a challenge just in the taxi. He would, every time I would try to touch him or adjust him, he would scream, ouch, um, he would cry for every every woman he saw on the street. He would call out, Mama, Mama. And it was just really, it was heartbreaking. Uh, we got him to the home, uh, and we had to separate him. We had to keep him separate because he couldn't sit at the table with the other kids and eat. He would just hit, bite, slap. It was just, uh, it was very challenging. Um, and so, so we had to keep him separate. Uh, had to have his own activities most of the time. And, and that lasted for about six months. And so... Um, after about six months of just uh, loving on Gabriel and just um, not giving up on him, uh, we began to see this change. And so he began to be able to sit at the table. Um, he, wasn't, he wasn't so violent anymore. He wasn't so, uh, he didn't want to hit or bite. Uh, he could sit, he could participate. He began being able to sit with the other kids um, and color and work on the things that they were working on. And so 
Um, Gabrielle has since gone to be with uh, a grandmother uh, who also lives in Bolivia. And, and I remember the day he left, it was, it was bittersweet. I was kind of shocked uh, that he was leaving. Um, but he was a completely different kid. It wasn't the kid that came into our home. He was a, he was a different kid. And, and it wasn't because of any special skills um, that we or our staff had. It wasn't because we were providing anything other than love. Um, it was just constant showing him that he was loved and important and, and that we saw the trans transition transformation in him as well so don't miss that um a, a radical kind of love stepped into somebody's brokenness and it transformed them does that sound familiar to anybody else that, that, that's the gospel right there on display and so there it is again this happens to us therefore we get to be a part of, of doing this in other people's lives. We give what we've been given. Uh, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 and 9 say this, that uh, for it is by grace we've been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. Um, it, it's a gift. It's a gift. God's given this to us. We didn't earn it. God gave it to us. It's not a as a result of works so that no one can boast. So nobody's like cracking open, go, yeah, look at me. That's, God didn't choose us to be on his team because we were so awesome. He did it because he loved us. And that radical love transforms us. Then he turns the corner. The very next verse, this is verse 10. We love, we love 8 and 9 there. We need to hear verse 10 this morning. Uh, because it says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God's given us all of this, and we get to be a part of doing this in the world, right? This is, we've, we give what we've been given. He's given us incredible grace, therefore we give grace. He's given us un uh, unbelievable mercy, therefore we give an unbelievable kind of mercy. He has given us radical love, therefore what do we get to give? Radical love. And so uh, for Orphan Sunday in particular, we raise this banner and we rally you to say, hey, this is part of what we as a church get to do. Uh, and so I just want to talk for uh, just to briefly apply this church-wide. Um, uh, number one, uh, you, you need to commit to pray for these guys. Uh, jump on board with child sponsorship if you haven't already uh, and be a part of that. It's 65 $68, $68 a month. Um, to, to help with that. So uh, great opportunity for you to participate in that. Uh, you pray for them, uh, commit, and, and be a part of that ministry. Uh, they're going to get back on the ground, kind of take assessment of the situation. We're going to send another team to support them in 2017. Uh, don't know when exactly, but just be ready. Be ready to go. Raise your hand. I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's jump on and do that. So be a part of that. Uh, that is that is one the place where we're really really pushing uh, in terms of our one of our big efforts uh, there not only in missions but also in orphan care. Uh, secondly, you as an individual and as a family, I need to get together and, and pray. Okay, God, how do I now respond to this? Like, what is my role in response to this? If I give what I've been given, uh, if I get to you know, receive from you and then give out to you. I mean, give out to others. Um, you know, what, what is my response to this? And what, what, what are the needs? Here's, here's just a couple of stats that I hope will help drive some of this home. There are 18 million orphans in the world. 18 million. Uh, well, what am I supposed to do about that? I, I don't know. I mean, that's the truth. I, I don't know. Um, but I know this. You, know, you can do something maybe about one of them. Uh, that, that, that's for sure. So just... Man, you need to pray about that number, whatever it 
may be. And if 18 million is a little overwhelming to you, let's bring it down just to Texas here. 13,238 kids um, in, the, uh, in the foster care system waiting to be adopted. 13,238. This stat, though, this is the one that messed me up this week. I sat with Mike Wells this week, and I was like, er, er, I don't even know what to do with this. 13,238 kids uh, ready to be adopted from the foster care system in the state of Texas. How many churches in Texas? Somebody? How many, Cody? 27,550. I don't want to be that guy who doesn't get it right. 505. 27,505. 13,000 kids, 27,505 churches. Anybody see the correlation here? There's twice as many churches as there are adoptable kids right now, folks. It's called a dramatic pause. <laughs> that needs to sink in on us. That needs to weigh on us a little bit. Maybe your shoulders should get a little tighter after that. 13,000 kids, 27,000. 27,000 churches. So um, it, here are just some, in light of that, here are some directions. I'll just point you to, these are um, groups that I personally have interactions with. There are others out there that are terrific. That's not what I'm, I'm not saying those are bad people. I'm saying I have personal interactions uh, with these. Uh, when it comes to foster care resources, uh, the Jameson Center and Arrow Foster Care are both local organizations where you can go talk to a physical person before you have to fill out anything or do it. I mean, you can sit down and talk with them about what foster care uh, looks like and what it means. It is not easy. Those of us who have fostered before would tell you that's, that's step number one is just to admit, boy, this is not easy. Uh, but a hundred years from now, it won't matter, will it? Will it? It won't. So uh, if, you, if you are have prayed about or thinking about a foster care, the Jameson Center or the Arrow uh, Foster Care, either of those organizations would be worthwhile. Uh, and here's adoption resources. Um, America World Adoption Association is who my wife and I, we used when we adopted our two girls. That's uh, international. Um, uh, they're, they're based in Virginia. Um, and again, there are other organizations that are great too, just that's the one I am personally familiar with and that I can speak to. And then Generations Adoptions is a domestic one. Uh, they're actually based up in Central Texas, but they have an office here uh, in the Houston area. And so if you've ever thought about pursuing that, those are two good avenues, organizations by which to uh, at least take a step. Um, when we close our service here in a minute, we're going to pray for TJ and Tammy and their family. Uh, but here's what I want to do. I, I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray right now uh, for all of us because God's spoken to us now. And, and now we're accountable for this stuff. And we need to figure out how then we best respond. Where do we, where do we make room to let this stuff in and then let it start um, uh, growing in us so that we can honor the Lord in the ways that we need to? So let's pray, okay?